1968, the World Olympics were hosted in Mexico City. And some of us weren't born then, but you know, it's a good piece of history. And for those of you who might have remembered the 68 Olympics, um, I wasn't even born yet, uh, there was the Olympic Marathon. And in that Olympic marathon, runners from all over the world came to run, and one of those runners was from Tanzania, and his name was John Stephen Akwari. And uh, 75 people started this 26-mile race, but only 57 people finished. And John Akwari was one of the men who finished. Now, about 12 miles into the 26-mile run, he started cramping up really bad because he was not accustomed to the altitude that he was running. And next thing he knows, he's in a massive pileup with multiple runners. And as he fell, he gashed his knee, he dislocated his knee, and also injured his shoulder. Well, with 14 more miles to go, no one would expect him to go on, but to everyone's surprise, he got back up and continued on in the marathon. He went all 14 miles with a dislocated knee that was gashed and bleeding and a hurt shoulder. And he was the last person to enter the stadium. So long after all the other runners had finished, long after the sun had set, Long after the stadium had emptied of everybody except for a couple thousand people still, John Akwari entered the stadium limping and then actually brought himself to slightly jog most of the way around the track and then walked across the finish line. And he was the last person in, which means he lost, right? No, he didn't. He redefined the win that day. Because if you would have heard the sound of the cheering from the 2,000 people that knew what was happening and, and were ushering him in, and if you would have seen the smile on his face, even though he was collapsing in exhaustion, you realize that he actually won. And no one really remembers the name of the person that won the shiny little medal that came in first, right? But a lot of people remember John Akwari's name because of his miraculous finish of this race. And they interviewed him afterwards and said, what was it that kept you going? Why why did you try to finish this race in the condition you were in? And he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And so he redefined the win that day by saying, it's finishing this the win, not getting the first place medal. We live in a world that has defined the win for our life. The world, our culture, and even our flesh would say that the win for our life is to make sure we have lots and lots of money, chase money, lots and lots of possessions, so chase possessions, um, acquire a lot of experiences, and make sure that you're comfortable, that you avoid pain, and that everybody likes you, and that you're popular, and you're accepted by a lot of people. Those would be kind of the targets that the world would put up saying those are the wins for us. But as you study scripture and as you look at the teachings of Jesus, something becomes very clear. Jesus redefines the wins. And what the world would call losses, Jesus calls wins. And what Jesus calls wins, the world would say are losses. This is how Jesus redefines the win. He flips the script. And we're starting this series today called Against the Grain. And this type of understanding of what Christ has called us to is against the grain living. 
When you look at wood and you look at any other you know, element that has grain, the grain runs a certain way and it's easy to go with the grain. If you cut wood with the grain, it's easier. But if you try to cut against the grain, it's more difficult. And so as Christians, God has called us to live against the grain of what the world says we should pursue, what we should pursue for meaning and worth and value and make our lives about. And Jesus is reinforcing that through all of his teachings. And so today we're being reminded how Jesus has redefined the wind and goes against the grain and then calls us as his children, calls us as citizens of his kingdom to go against the grain with him. And so as you think about your life, as you think about if someone were to follow you around for a week, a month, or a year, would they say your life goes with the grain of the culture or against the grain? Do you look, act, sound, behave just like everyone else in the culture, chasing what they're chasing for meaning, value, and worth, or have you accepted the against-the-grain living of Christ and you're trying to please Christ rather than your own flesh and rather than the world? So that's what we're going to be talking about today, and we're going to be going back into the book of Luke. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 6. I told you over uh, just about a year ago that we're going to be spending a good year, year and a half in the book of Luke. We just want to walk with Christ. We want to listen to his teachings. We want to look at his example. We want to walk with our Savior. And so we've been going in and out of the book of Luke over the last year to year and a half. And so we're getting back in today, Luke chapter 6. And we're going to be starting in verses 17 and going through verse 26, but we're just going to read a little bit, stop a little bit, talk, read a bit, a little bit, stop a little bit, and talk. And so let's find ourselves in Luke 6, starting with verse 17. Now, what's happened up to this point is that Jesus is early on in his ministry. He just spent some time on the top of a mountain praying, just connecting with the Heavenly Father. God the Son is connecting with God the Father. And then he just selected his 12 apostles. He's got a large group of disciples with him, people that want to be his followers, but he's just hand-selected 12 of them to be his apostles. And now he is coming down from the mountain with these apostles and the disciples, and they're hanging out together. And this is what it says in verse 17. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them. So what we see here is that the word, the word has traveled fast. That as Jesus is beginning his ministry, how he teaches with authority and, and how he handles the truths of God, and also the facts that he can miraculously heal people. He's casting out demons. He's healing people of their diseases. All these people are flocking to him. And so here he is on this level place. Now, some people think that what you see in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, is the same passage and same message and same sermon that we see here in Luke 6, that there's a plateau somewhere on the mountain, and that's the level place. And this is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. 
account, and this is Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Others believe this is a whole other sermon, that the Sermon on the Mount was the Sermon on the Mount, and that this is a whole other sermon elsewhere in a level place, Sermon on the Plain. That doesn't really matter as much because we know that Jesus was teaching the same thing pretty much wherever he was going. And so I encourage you not to get hung up on whether this was the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, because ultimately it's the Sermon on the Kingdom. It's a sermon on the kingdom. This is a, a place where Jesus is unloading the qualities, the against the grain living that will be true of his followers. And so these are qualifications and exemplifications of those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And at this point, people have traveled from all over to hear Jesus. This is, this is a, an incredible feat. So as he's teaching there in the region of Galilee, you've got people as far as south, southwest from the area of Judea and from Jerusalem, and they're traveling up to see him in the area of, um, in Galilee. And they've got people from the northwest coast now traveling to the Sea of Galilee. These, these are not easy journeys, and people are showing up to hear Jesus. And so somewhere in the region of Galilee, if like if you were to look at an aerial photo of the region of Galilee, somewhere around here is where this moment happens among the landscape of that next to the Sea of Galilee. And with the backdrop of all these people, Jesus is about to make clear this against the grain living as he redefines the wind. So let's look at his actual teaching starting in verse 20 of Luke 6. It says, he lifted up his eyes on his, what's the word? Disciples. So the target audience are the disciples. There's thousands present, thousands of people, but he's targeting this teaching toward those who would identify themselves as followers of Christ, students of Christ. And so this is not, what we're about to read here doesn't generally apply to all people. He's targeting those who've committed to follow him. He says, blessed are you, disciples, right? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. We'll pause there. So Jesus is calling out the wins and losses in these passages to unfold. And first he starts with the wins. And as you notice, what Jesus calls wins, the world would call losses. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Now let's just stop here and go, we've got to unpack a term. What is the term blessed? Well, if you look at this passage, it's known as the Beatitudes. Beatitudes comes from a Latin word, beatus, which is taken from the word blessed. And when you look at the word blessed in the original language, it's the Greek word makarios. And so makarios is the Greek word here, mentioned four times. Sometimes it's translated as happy. I think that's a little bit superficial and a little bit weak. Because happy's the poor, happy's the hungry, happy's the sad, right? That's kind of weird. And then happy are those who are hated. I think this word actually has deeper weight, heavier meaning. This is not just happy. There's a deep fulfillment. There's a deep joy that someone possesses despite their circumstances. And so this type of blessed comes from knowing that you are the object of God's love. And you are the object of his adoration. And he loves you immensely. So no matter what circumstances you go through, good or bad, 
a true follower of Christ, as they grow and mature in their faith and their Christ-likeness, will see that they are blessed or blessed no matter what comes their way. And so uh, this word blessed in our terminology, we typically reserve it just for good things, right? Like, oh, I got a new job. I'm so blessed, right? Oh, here's me and my family eating amazing meals, looking really awesome for holidays. Hashtag blessed, all right? Um, got the spouse that I wanted, got the job I wanted, got into the college I wanted. Blessed, 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 blessed. That's all good and true. It's just a half truth. Because the other side of that is, even on our worst days, if you understand eternity, if you understand Christ's kingdom, we know that we truly are blessed. And so we don't want to be guilty of only defining blessed as when good things happen, because you can still be blessed when bad things happen. Amen? Absolutely true in Christ. And so first he says, as he unpacks four specific you know, areas of blessing, he says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who are poor now, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so you think about the amount of people that were drawn to Christ, these next two qualifications, you know that there was a great amount of people that were poor and hungry. Because Jesus oftentimes drew from the outcast and from the, the, the outer lives of the population and from the peripheral people. And so a lot of people that came to Christ were in poverty and they experienced great hunger. And so this is really a, a leadership equipping moment in the life of Christ's teaching, where he's encouraging them through these beatitudes, but he's also equipping them of how to think through these beatitudes. And he's saying, look, some of you are poor. Blessed are you who are poor right now, because you now belong to the kingdom of God, which means all that is God's belongs to you. That everything in God's will, if you will, you're the beneficiary. Everything in God's warehouse, which is limitless, it all belongs to you. And you might not see that now, but because you are a child of God, it is yours. If you look carefully, it says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You currently possess. And so Jesus was trying to encourage those who had poverty that they actually had so much more coming in the age to come. Now remember, when we're talking about Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, it's, it's come right now. It's here. The Christ, you know, your kingdom come. His kingdom's here, but it's not full and final. We know that at the return of Christ, then his full and final kingdom will be here, and all these promises will be completely fulfilled for those who are in Christ. And so he's encouraging the poor. Look, you're experiencing poverty now, but in the age to come, you're not going to know what to do with all that you have. Because Physical wealth is not a good measure of spiritual health and spiritual wealth. Spiritual richness, richness is really the, the, the way to gauge our true health and our true resources. Now notice, Jesus isn't saying, blessed are you if you're poor, as in we're supposed to pursue poverty. He's not saying poverty is good or it's good to be poor. He's just saying for those who find themselves there, You've got to find the blessed nature of it because you belong to the kingdom of God. Now, some of us might be thinking a little bit of a disconnect. Like, I know that some of us here have, have job loss. You're unemployed. You're underemployed. Uh, you know what it's like to not know where your next paycheck's coming from. You know what it's like to stress a little bit because income's low. But just encouraging you, when you think about our poverty level compared to the global scale of poverty, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're like in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world on our poorest day. 
And so maybe you can't relate to the person that was in that crowd that day that had literally nothing but the clothes on their back. Maybe you've had that experience. But if the day comes when you can't find ends meeting or you are in a poverty place of mind, remember, blessed are you because you belong to the kingdom and your king owns everything. And so he's, he's redefining the wind when it comes to being poor. He also said, blessed are the hungry, right? Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. In the same way, anyone in that crowd that day who hadn't eaten for days, who hadn't eaten for hours or for who knows how long, he's saying, you're hungry right now. Your stomach is hurting because you long for food. But blessed are you who are hungry now because you're part of this kingdom. You will be satisfied, fully satisfied. Now, I want you to think about the times where Jesus was teaching on mountains. We have two accounts, for example, where a bunch of people came up there. They had no food, right? Crowd of 4,000 men, crowd of 5,000 men, plus women and children. They didn't have food with them except for some little kid that had like his lunch, right? And Jesus multiplied the lunch and fed everybody with leftovers. And so this is a very common place where people sometimes didn't know where the next meal was coming from. And, and there was a place of hunger. And Jesus is going, blessed are you who are hungry right now because you're going to be satisfied. And not just the stomach pangs, not, not just the hunger pangs in your stomach, but also the hunger pangs of your heart. And of course, the imagery that Jesus is drawing on here is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That in the age to come, every follower of Christ is going to be dining and fellowshipping with Jesus. And we will be fully satisfied. There'll be no hunger. There'll be no hunger pangs in the stomach. There'll be no hunger pangs in the, in the heart or in the soul. We will feel complete satisfaction in Christ. And so he's reminding them, blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be satisfied. And we know God meets our daily needs. He gives us our daily bread, but yet he gives us so much more when we're in Christ. He also says, blessed are you who weep now, right? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, maybe some of us are having a little bit of a disconnect with the poverty and the hunger. Maybe you're not thinking about times in your life where you didn't know where your next meal or two or three were coming from or, or when that provision was going to come. But a lot of us can really connect with this weeping part. We, we all know what it feels like to hurt. Life, life hurts. And it hurts because of our sin. We, we have done things to ourselves. We've made decisions that has brought pain into our life and into the lives of the people we love. Some of us have felt pain because people that we deeply love are making choices that are harmful to them and it hurts our hearts. And so, so we know that pain. Uh, there's pain because sickness has invaded your home and your family. There's the addiction has intruded into your family. We, we all know what it feels like to lose and to have loss and have grief and to mourn, which causes weeping. I mean, all of us here hopefully has had moments where we've wept because there's been deep pain and loss and sorrow on some level. Maybe there are angry tears or just painful tears. Jesus is saying, blessed are you who weep now. That even though you experience pain now, grief now, loss now, there's a day coming when I'm going to transform those tears into laughter. Now we know that we get little respite um, little pieces of respite now on earth. There are times when we have loss and pain and we still find ourselves able to laugh and experience the joy of the Lord even now, but that pain is still there. It still lingers like a shadow. It's always there. But there's going to be a day when Christ comes and whether we go, go to Christ or whether he comes to us and we're home with the Lord, all that's gone. 
There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sorrow. And Jesus is going to wipe those tears and there's going to be a transformation to laughter and joy. You know, there's a couple moments where God gives the Apostle John a sneak peek of this in heaven. And so if you are familiar with the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, what that really is is God peeling back heaven and letting the Apostle John see it and experience it and then write about it. And so we see moments, two moments in Revelation of what's to come for those who are in Christ. In Revelation 7, verses 16 through 17, it says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then again in Revelation 21, 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so what Jesus was trying to tell that group then, all Christians who've lived since then, and us in this room, and those of you watching online, that there's a day in Christ that our weeping will become laughing, and our grief will turn to joy. And we'll get glimpses of it now, but fully and finally when the kingdom comes, it's all going to be joy. And then he says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Doesn't that just sound beautiful? It's like a very gorgeous description here, right? But here's the qualifier. On account of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you're hated. Not because you're a jerk, right? He's not saying if you're just hated because people don't like you, that, that that's okay. He's saying if you're hated, if you're slandered, if you're mistreated, if you're excluded because you love me on account of the Son of Man, he says in that day, rejoice. He says in that day, rejoice. Now, when we look at our life, this is again where we're a little bit shielded from what goes on in the rest of the world. And uh, if you truly love Christ, that means that you are taking a stand on biblical values. And if you take a stand on biblical values when it comes to, you know, being pro-life or marriage, gender, um, values, morality, etc., if you're going to take a stand saying, this is what God has said, and then I'm just going to follow what God has said, you're going to be called names. And you're, you're going to be accused of hate speech. And you're going to have fingers pointed at you. And you're going to have uh, mischaracterizations put upon you. Now, if you're online or if you're in a conversation or you're in a group setting and all of a sudden you're basically in an uncomfortable place because you know you're the minority and the majority might feel like what God has said is not okay, is okay, and you're trying to stand for what God has said is not okay or what is okay, and you're the odd person out, in that moment, you're supposed to rejoice in that because you're identifying with Christ. And so all of us have probably experienced some awkwardness, maybe even some mild persecution because of standing for our faith. But you have to remember, this audience that originally heard this, they were a Jewish audience. So if they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, if Jesus was truly the Jewish Messiah they're waiting for, and they started following Christ, all the other Jews, which was the majority, by the way, that didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they started mistreating them. 
And so, for example, the temple, which hired many Jewish people to uh, service and care for, if a person became a follower of Christ, they were fired from the temple service. If their Jewish boss caught wind that they were a follower of Jesus, they, they probably got fired for it. And then on top of that, uh, the mistreatment that came for them as followers of Christ. And ever since uh, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, his followers have been a persecuted people. If, if you are a follower of Christ, your family legacy is one of persecution. Again, you don't hear this stuff at the altar calls, right? Hey, anyone here want to be hated for the sake of Jesus? Anyone here want to be insulted and excluded from things because you're following Jesus? Want to come on up to the altar today? You don't hear that. But that comes with the territory. If you want to follow Christ, then guess what? You're going to be treated like Christ. Christ was hated. They didn't put him on the cross because they thought he was a nice guy. They didn't put him on a cross because they thought uh, he was an amazing dude and they just, you know, it was just a, a misfire. They, they learned to hate Jesus and what he taught and what he said. It went against the grain of what that culture was about. And Jesus calls us to live against the grain. And if you live against the grain, you're going to be hated, you're going to be excluded, you're going to be slandered. And I just want to remind you, uh, any form of persecution that we feel in America is mild. It's very, very mild. You just have to remember that right now, today, around the world, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ that to gather like we're gathering, it's, it's taking their life in their hands. And there are villages um, of Christians that are attacked. And whether it be by gun or machete, lives are slaughtered all because they love Jesus. And so we're not afraid of our homes being burned. We're not afraid of people beating us or cutting us with machetes or shooting us with guns because we love Jesus here in this setting. But we have family. We have family that are experiencing that all around the world. And so we need to remember to be praying for them. We need to remember to try to encourage them. Two websites I highly recommend if you want to find out more about that. Uh, one is persecution.com. One is opendoorsusa.org. These websites give you real-time stories, real-time stats of what's going on in the world when it comes to persecution. Uh, one of those sites posts right now the most extreme persecution and where it's taking place. Right now, Christians in North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan are experiencing the most persecution for being followers of Christ. And so we need to be praying for them. We need to be thinking about them and remembering that they're blessed and Jesus says, when that day comes, leap for joy because you're being identified as Christ. And just remember, anytime you're being mistreated for Christ, you're not the person that they have the issue with. Their issues with Christ. It's just they can't get to him, so they take it out on you. And so we just want to be faithful. So I told you, Jesus is redefining the winds here. Like poor, hungry, sad and weeping and hated. Those are things the world would say are losses. Jesus says they're wins. Jesus calls them wins, but the world says, yeah, but those are losses. And so Jesus is calling us to this against the grain standard to live different. And then just to make sure his audience is hearing him clearly, what he does is he gives these four um, beatitudes, and then he's going to give four woes. The, a woe means a warning of grief, of, of, of grief that's coming. And so he, he, he takes these four woes, and they all match up with one of the Beatitudes to make sure that the crowd and his disciples are hearing him correctly. And so look what he says in verse 24. Look at Luke 6.24 back in your Bibles. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So let's unpack this for a little bit. He says, woe to you who are rich. And as you've been listening over the last couple months, this topic keeps coming up in God's word, right? Because he, he wants to make sure that we fully understand that wealth is a competitor in our heart for Jesus. And it's not wealth, it's just our heart's desire to have. And so here it's like, woe to those who are rich isn't for those who just possess wealth, it's for those who chase after it. For those who define meaning and purpose and value on their income rather than on their relationship with the Lord and their identity in Christ. And so uh, he's saying if, if, you, if you are pursuing that, then guess what your win is? Guess what the consolation or your comfort is? The wealth you have today, and then it's gone. Your prize, your wealth today, and then it's gone. You've got nothing in the future. So see how that contrasts with blessed are the poor? Your future is much brighter. Blessed are those who are trusting in the riches? Not so bright. And if you learn to love money and chase money and reject God, then in the end, you have no inheritance with the Lord. You have nothing that you're looking forward to, and all you get was what you had in this life. He also says, woe to you who are full. You could probably loosely translate this, woe to those who are fat and happy, right? What this means is that your life is about pursuing gain to the point that you lack nothing. You don't know what it feels like to need something. And so we know that a lot of times that's what the world's pressing us to do, to, to fill up our storehouses with things that make us happy so we can sit back and go, look at all that I have. To be full with food, with experience, with possessions, etc. And so what he's saying is those of you who are full now, you're comfortable. Life is about pursuing comfort. In the age to come, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be longing. There will be no satisfaction found for you in the future. Your prize, you were full on earth, but now you're empty in heaven. And so he's making a very deep uh, contrast here. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep and mourn. Now when he says laugh here, God doesn't have an issue with laughing. Okay, You can laugh in church. You can laugh all you want. Laugh is good. It's not laughter in general. It's the kind of laughing he's speaking about here. And when he says, those of you who laugh now, this is an arrogant laugh. This is a self-fulfilling laugh. This is a laugh that mocks and says, I'm untouchable. I've got everything I need. It's, it's a bragging laugh. That although there's people all around me that, that have needs, I don't. And although there's people all around me that are hurting, I'm not. And it's this mocking laugh. And God's saying that if you find yourself laughing now and pursuing the things of the world and trusting the things of the world, then in eternity you'll be the one weeping and mourning. And so look at this interesting image. Why, why would we give in to the temptation? Why would, we be, why would we be suckered by the argument to make this life only about that which we can experience in this life when there's a life after this life? And the only way to get there and, and, and be on the winning side is to be in Christ. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, who's got the last laugh is kind of another way to look at this. And those who resist God but are so happy with themselves, in the end, they're the ones that are going to be weeping. And uh, if, you, if you look forward in the book of Luke, Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a reference to that. 
that the future for those who reject and laugh and mock, they don't have Christ, they will be one day the ones who weep and mourn. And then he says something interesting here. He says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so the fathers did to the false prophets. He keeps bringing up the prophets of old. We know that the, the prophets that were faithful to God knew that they had to faithfully communicate whatever God told them to. And so as a prophet, they would sometimes walk into the nation of Israel and say, uh, things are good, you've been obeying God, and he's, his joy is upon us, and things are going to be good. And there were times they had to walk in to the people of Israel and say, hey, look, you've been rebellious, you've been disobedient, you've turned your back on God, and because of that, he's going to punish us. And he's going to send this nation or that nation to oppress us or to take us. And so uh, to be a faithful prophet, you had to speak whatever God said. But the false prophets... The false prophets wanted to be good with everybody. They wanted to be in good. So they would say, oh, that, 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 that's a false prophecy. There's no doom and gloom. I'm a prophet of God. And actually, the truth is, we're going to have victory in the battle. We're going to have years of abundance and plenty. God's favor is upon us. And yet they're lying through their teeth. They're a false prophet. But all the people liked them because that's what they wanted to hear, right? And so they pursued popularity. They pursued acceptance with people. You think we would outgrow that middle school desire to be liked and accepted by everybody. It comes on early, and then through our adolescence, the, the, the desire to be liked and accepted is so strong. And we all can probably tell stories, and some of you young people are, are living that battle right now where you're, you're trying to be accepted, and so you're just kind of going to go with whoever is going to accept you and do whatever they're doing. And some of us adults still struggle with that, don't we? Like you think we'd outgrow that at some point. What Jesus is saying here is don't pursue popularity. Pursue faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. And so if all people speak well of you, that means you're trying to make good with everybody so that everybody likes you. Which means if everybody likes you, you have no convictions. And you're not speaking on them because you're too afraid to rock the boat. And so you want popularity. You want acceptance. And Jesus is saying, woe to those when that's what you're doing. When all people speak well of you, you're acting just like the old prophets, saying whatever you need to say to be liked by others. That's not a kingdom person. A kingdom person just speaks what the king says and represents what the king wants. And so being rich, if we look at all this, being rich, being well-fed, being happy, and being popular are not in and of themselves bad. But if that's the goal of your life, it's a temporary gain with an eternal loss. And all of it will be lost after this life. The pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of ease, the pursuit of wealth and popularity in this life reveals a disconnect with the eternity to come. But if we have our eyes on eternity and we know we're in Christ, we know we belong to the kingdom of Christ, we're going to navigate poverty and hunger, and grief, and hatred, and, and, and being mistreated differently. And so again, you see Jesus redefining the win here. Because what the world calls wins, you just saw it. Jesus is calling them losses. And what the world would call losses, Jesus calls wins. This life that we're living is temporary. And it's fleeting. We don't want to live for what this world has to offer. We want to live in this world with what our king has to offer. 
what Christ has to offer. And so he calls us to these beatitudes. If you're ever poor, if you're ever hungry, if you're ever hurting, if you're ever hated, you're blessed. Now I think what this also does is it pushes on our call as Christians. Like what does it mean to be a Christian? Being a Christian doesn't mean you said a prayer. Being a Christian doesn't mean you show up to a gathering once a week, every, you know, once a month, or twice a month, or three times a month, and just show up. It means that you are growing to be more like Christ. Luke 6.40, Jesus said this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. These beatitudes, these woes, they call us to be like Jesus. Was Jesus ever poor? That's all Jesus was, right? Jesus didn't have a home that he hung out with. He just camped out. He traveled around during his ministry. He said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? When he was called to pay taxes, he's like, I got nothing. Uh, Peter, go down fishing, get a fish, open up the mouth of the fish, pull out a coin, pay the tax with that. I don't, I don't, I don't have it, okay? When, when he wanted to ride into Jerusalem, he, he had to borrow a donkey. He didn't have one. And he had to borrow a tomb, wasn't even his own tomb. But he wasn't going to be in it very long. That's okay. Well, Jesus knew poverty. Did Jesus ever hunger? How about 40 days in the wilderness without any food? And the devil comes up afterwards going, hey, you can turn these rocks into bread. Jesus knows hunger. He doesn't like to, to feel hunger. Was Jesus, did Jesus ever weep? Yeah, Jesus wept. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept when he ascended the hill and saw Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem and the lostness of the people. Jesus knows what it's like to weep. Was Jesus hated? Yes, he was. And so if we experience these parts of our life, we're becoming more like Christ. We're starting to understand the winds as Christ puts them. And on that note, if you think about Jesus, in the world's eyes, when they look at the cross, Jesus lost. He died on the cross. The world goes, he lost. But what the world calls a loss, Christ calls a win. Because it was that death on the cross that paid for our sin. And that death on the cross that gives us the ability to be forgiven and made new in Christ. And so I'm so glad that Jesus made the wins, the losses, and the losses of the wins. And I hope you are too. Hey, I want to put those four Beatitudes up on the screen for you really fast. I want you to look at these four. Poor, hungry, weeping, hatred. Jesus experienced them all. But which one today would you say is one that you relate to most in your life? Which one of those is one that maybe you're feeling a little bit heavier in your life right now? Is it the poor? Is it the hungry? Is it the weeping, the hatred? I'll be transparent. The weeping is, is mine. This year has just had some very challenging seasons. And so there's probably been a little bit more tears in, in my eyes this year than there have been. So, so I'm so glad, I can be so comforted by that no matter what kind of weeping I experience here, there'll be nothing but joy in the future to come. And so whatever words you're gravitating to, what did Jesus say about that? What was the win in the eyes of Jesus? And so look at those words, and here's a couple questions for you for application. What is a good practical step to, to act upon in believing what Jesus said about that area of your life? What can you do if you're feeling poor, if you're feeling hungry, if you're weeping, if you're hated? What, what, can you, what can you do, what kind of application can you have because of what Jesus said in this text? And also, what kind of prayer can you pray based on what Jesus said in this text?
You know, I can't help but think about the words of John Stephen Aquari when he told that reporter, a country didn't send me here 5,000 miles to start a race, but to finish the race. Look, Jesus didn't put you here just to start the race. He, he brought you here to finish the race. And you're going to be bandaged and you're going to be limping when you cross that finish line. But in Christ, we can cross that finish line. If we live according to the winds and against the grain, like he says. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder today that you've given us in your word that as Christians, as people who have surrendered to Christ, have invited Christ into our life, we belong to your kingdom. And your kingdom operates differently than the world's kingdom. So Lord, thank you that Jesus over and over and over again, as we just saw in one place today, redefines the win. So I pray for any of my brothers and sisters here, that Lord, if they're experiencing poverty or hunger or grief or mistreatment, that they would grab a hold of what they've heard and saw today and walk taller. Walk knowing that not only will they see glimpses of what they have now, but that there's an age coming, a time coming, where all will be made new. God, together we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Lord, we, we talked about words today that we don't fully understand to the depths that they do, Lord. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia and Africa and the Middle East and all the other areas of the world that are experiencing true uh, poverty and true hunger and true um, persecution, Father, that they're weeping, tears of grief that maybe we'll never weep. Father, would they just cling to you? They turn their eyes to Christ and take comfort in your word and your promises. Father, pray for anyone here and watching online that doesn't know you as Savior, that today they would take the step of believing in Christ as Savior based on what they heard today from Jesus. So we love you. We offer our lives for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, we all sit together. Amen. Stand together.